Welcome to Empire State Engagements. I'm Dr. Robert Childs. On the eve of the Civil War, partisanship was rife in New York State, and we can learn surprising things about this at the local level, as Melissa Franson shows in her new article on political partisanship in the Catskills region. All of this acrimonious splintering is nowhere to be found in these histories. And so as I'm reading these newspapers and I'm seeing how these people are voting and what they're talking about in their letters, I'm like, this is crazy because this is like a completely different type of atmosphere than what I'm reading in these town histories. excited to be joined today by Melissa Franson. Melissa is a PhD candidate in the history department at Binghamton University, as well as an instructor in the history department at SUNY New Paltz. Her dissertation research examines how civilians and soldiers from the Catskills region experienced the American Civil War as a lived reality in their everyday lives. She's joining us today to talk about one piece of that broader project, her forthcoming article for the New York History Journal entitled, Wide Awakes, Half Asleeps, Little Giants and Bell Ringers, Political Partisanship in the Catskills of New York during the elections of 1860 and 1862. So first of all, welcome Melissa to Empire State Engagements. Um, uh, one item, that leaps forth uh, straight from the title of your essay is this uh, proliferation of political factional names that emerged in the antebellum period. Whenever I have the pleasure of teaching that period, I always sort of try to work the students through a running glossary of these weird factional titles um, to keep things straight. And I'll invite you as we proceed to flesh out some of what those terms meant. But I think more broadly speaking, those names emerged from the broader energy and the, the constant fracturing of local politics over great national issues, uh, but also what might strike us sometimes as factions emerging over provincial uh, minutia at times. 
Um, one of the strengths of your essay, I believe, uh, is that it brings us straight into the world, uh, this political world, but in a specific place where people have specific concerns at that granular level that you really uh, bring us to understand in the Catskills. So for starters, long-winded question, uh, I'll ask you to, to, for a moment, take us to the Catskills. You talk about lived experience. Take us to the Catskills in the fall of 1860 and provide us a sense for the energy, the spectacle, the drunkenness. Uh, what was the atmosphere like in politics in the Catskills in this highly contested election? Well, it was exactly that, like you described it. Um, it was pretty much a party every weekend um, to try to set the place here. Um, the Catskills region is a very broad way to describe five very different, but yet very similar um, counties. Um, the biggest county as far as population would go would be Ulster, and they have the city of Kingston um, is their major county seat. And that, that was a big city at the time. Um, and it's right on the Hudson. So it's kind of a major hub for all the counties around it. Everyone's kind of funneling into Kingston um, to send stuff down or up the Hudson. So pretty much most farmers that are living in say Sullivan County or Delaware County or Schoharie or Green, they're kind of, Kingston is kind of like their major meeting area, if you will. Um, so Green is also, you know, along the Hudson, but it's much more rural. Um, Delaware, super rural. It, the further you get away from the Hudson River, um, the more um, spread out the population is, the smaller the cities and the towns get. Um, Sullivan County kind of borders Ulster and Orange County, which is somewhat in my dissertation a little bit, uh, just because there's a couple towns that are technically, um, they're bordering Sullivan County and Sullivan County, Orange County, um, commerce, trade, they don't, it's not border recognized. So they, they don't care that they live on the border, right? Um, so the further away you get from Kingston, the smaller the towns get, the smaller the populations are, the more rural we'll say that they are. Um, and then each county has different industries that, um, so for example, tanneries are a big industry in this region. Um, and you start out with them closer to the Hudson because people from New York City are coming up to the Catskills region, starting these tanneries, um, and they're moving steadily west and steadily north away from the Hudson River region. But the mountains, um, where all the hemlock trees, that's, that's where they need to be. So in a way, yes, we can call them rural, but they're super connected as well. And a lot of people that are settling there and starting businesses there are coming from New York City. So it's this weird dichotomy where it's rural, but yet it's not disconnected in any way. 
So the major cities, the major towns, that's where everyone meets. That's where everyone gets together. So as the political um, campaigns are ramping up in the late fall, when most of the harvesting is kind of dying down a little bit, now they have time to travel into town and to attend these political rallies, to participate in these marches, um, they want to party. They're having fun. And especially September, October, when everything's pretty quiet now as far as farming goes and having to get the harvest in, they're huge crowds, huge crowds. And it's something to do. Um, so it offers them an opportunity to get off the farm and go see people. Um, as far as entertainment, there's not a lot going on. <laughs> It's not like New York City where you have, you know, leisure halls and amusement parks. And the big thing to do is to go into town and attend a political rally, (laughs) Um, especially for young people. It's generational, too. Um, Even though all of the different political clubs would have rallies and speeches and and meetings, um, the Wide Awakes, the Republican party organizing um, organ there was super, super um, excited. They had one person at the top of their ticket. They weren't confused about who they were supporting. um, And they were younger, young men, um, not necessarily tied down to business yet, not necessarily owning their own farms yet, um, getting together, having fun, marching, with their, um, so Wide Awakes would have torches that they would march with. And so uh, lots of accounts in the newspapers about these marches through the towns on Main Street with hundreds of torches. Um, And it was exciting, people loved it. Um, I have a, a diary, it's very rare to have these great sources like this, but it's a diary written by a woman whose husband in, uh, they live in Delaware County in the town of Walton. Her husband is the sheriff. Her husband is a Democrat, supports Douglas. Their son, who's early 20s, he's wide awake. (laughs) He also plays in the band for all the wide awake um, celebrations that they have in all the different little towns. So there's this constant tension in the house Every time the son is going to leave the house to go participate in these celebrations, the father has a hard time. Why are you even bothering? And so this woman, Eliza, writes about this in her diary a lot, about how her husband can't get over this, and the son is just ignoring what he's supposed to be doing. So, so yeah, it's very celebratory. Gives them something to do, get off the farm, um, and it's younger people are participating more. Great. That sounds like such a rich source. Where did you, uh, where did you come across that? Oh, so this was great. So this was at the Delaware County Historical Society in Delhi. Um, and that's, that's what's so great about working on a, um, a very specific regional case study like this are all the little gems that you find in the small very small historical societies, town libraries, museums, um, 
you know, it's not like going to the National Archives in DC, you know, these huge repositories, right? It's usually like a little building and, and maybe one person might be employed there, but they have two or three volunteers and they just spend all day organizing and reading old sources. So Delaware County Historical Society guy named Ray actually was super, super helpful. He heard about my project from um, a fellow grad student that I was at with um, in Binghamton. And she told me about this place and she'd actually edited a volume of Civil War letters from a Delaware County soldier. And she says, oh, you got to go to this place. And that's usually how I find these places, word of mouth. Somebody heard I was working on the Catskills and, oh, do you know about this historical society? They have all these letters and they have all these sources. So they had a transcript of her diary, which is great if they've already transcribed it. <laughs> because 19th century handwriting can be pretty hard to um, <laughs> figure out sometimes. They had the original there too. Um, so I could look at that too if I wanted, but they had it all transcribed. So I literally went with my um, iPad and took pictures, JPEGs, and then loaded them up and I have the whole diary. So it's very rare to find um, a farming woman's diary like that that covers that many years too um so that was like such a great source to find well that's that's splendid I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up because so far one of the things in these conversations that i've heard time and again is as you said the gems that that people uh have been finding in sort of local archives and local historical societies and libraries. And so that's been a recurring theme uh, so far on our program. And I'm, I'm glad to hear you adding to that. Um, and as you talk about farm life and you talk about people uh, from the farms coming into town to participate in this spectacular politics, uh, you mentioned how these were market towns and they were connected to New York City and your article notes that uh, this region had increasingly uh, over the antebellum years been integrated into the New York City market and as also Southern uh, US markets um, through transportation revolution, market revolution. And I'm curious how that affected, uh, again, you being a, a historian who's particularly interested in the lived experiences, how was life changing uh, in the Catskills in this period? Because uh, I think that helps set the, the background for what you talk about in the article. Yeah, so as the area became more and more populated, so, you know, when you're talking the early 1800s, 1810s, 1820s, it's very sparsely populated, except for Ulster County. Ulster County had quite a, you know, was pretty settled. But Sullivan County, um, which is actually was created out of Ulster County. They basically cut off a chunk and said, this is Sullivan County now. Um, in Delaware County, especially, very sparsely populated up until like the 1830s, 1840s. And again, the driving industry there was the tanneries. And so a tannery would set up and around the tannery would kind of build a town. Um, and so throughout the 1830s, 1840s, there's more and more of that happening, um, especially in Sullivan County, 
more and more tanneries, you know, 10, 15, 20 tanneries and all these towns are popping up. Um, it's still very, um, I want to say conservative in their politics. They don't want government involved in their day-to-day -day lives. That is something that they're rejecting. <laughs> they see themselves as, you know, pioneers in the frontier. That's something that even in the 1860s, they're talk, they're describing where they live as the frontier still. <laughs> in the 1860s, you know, 50, 60 years after they've, you know, created these towns. So they kind of imagine themselves as separate in a way, insulated, but yet they know that they're not because their very livelihoods are tied into the markets into you know if you're a farmer you got to sell your stuff they're not subsistence farmers um and it's funny because i remember when i came to this project initially i had in my head what i thought i was going to find here um based on what i had read in you know in the literature right i thought i was going to find this republican stronghold because it's not new york city and everyone knows that New York State in this election, if it's not New York City, it's all Republican, right? Um, and I didn't find that. <laughs> but I also imagined them being mostly subsistence farmers that were kind of cut off, and, and I didn't find that either at all. So they're very aware of what's going on, um, both in New York City, but also the South, for, for sure. And that's something that the newspaper editors, um, especially Democratic ones, are are constantly writing about is let's not piss off the people in the South because they're buying our butter, they're buying our leather, they're buying our lumber. So they're aware of it. But on the other hand, what starts happening in the 1850s is there's fracturing that's happening. Um, some people are more interested in keeping government and business separate. Those would be your, your Democrats, your hardcore Democrats. Um, they're, they're supporting small government, right? Jacksonian idealism there, right? Um, but then there's others, other more entrepreneurial um, farmers. Younger farmers tend to be supportive of this. But also, if you're more rural, if you're further away from these big towns and cities, you want railroads, you want plank roads, you want turnpikes, because it takes a day or two for you to get to Kingston to, to sell your stuff, right? So you want to be able to do it quicker. So especially in Delaware County, once the Republican Party um, platform starts being popularized and, and they're talking about it in the press, it's opportunity, it's growth, um, free soil. That's why free soilers are, are under this umbrella of the Republican Party. They, they feel like they have to support the party of opportunity for them. It's definitely not about abolition. They're not abolitionists. They're not about um, that at all. <laughs> they reject it. But the Democrats, like I said, they're the party of small government and they don't want small government. They want government to help bring railroads and canals and roads. So it's 
it's fracturing along those lines. Um, there is a little bit, just a teeny, teeny, tiny fraction minority um, in Delaware County of abolition support because they're a little bit closer to the burned off, burned over district there, Western New York. They're a little closer. They had a little bit more interaction with um, evangelical preacher. You know, they, they had a little bit more involvement in Delaware County. Um, so they do have more um, churches that are supportive of abolition, but it's a very tiny little fraction. <laughs> But that's why the Republican Party, though, is so appealing in this region. It's because it is opportunity and they like what they're hearing. Um, the Democrats tend to be older. Um, they tend to be more set in their ways. They tend to own more property. They tend to own, they're already established farmers. They're happy with the way that their businesses are going. And they want, to, they want to keep things kind of the status quo. They don't want to alienate the people that are buying their products in the South. They don't want to alienate, alienate their, their New York City merchants that they have deals with, right? So that's kind of what's animating them going into this election is they, they really have a fear that their commerce, their ability to sell their stuff is going to be cut off. So they don't want to mess with that. They don't want change. Change is bad for them. So it's very personal. Everyone has their own opinions and thoughts and feelings on this. So we definitely can't generalize the Catskills as any one thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I, well, I think it's a really fascinating point. And I think you do a really nice job of explaining how they might be all starting from the same basic premise when you say early in the in the article uh, i'll quote from you say the catskills farmers idealized an agrarian republic that prioritized land ownership republicanism and political democracy blending these ideas into a local political economy that consistently adapted to changes in national politics and so that see that then becomes the second part that makes all this fascinating they had very uh, divergent interpretations of what exactly that meant in application given the current circumstances. Yep. Um, and so that could mean, as you say, um, we don't want the state interfering in our day-to-day -day operations, or it could be others saying we can only be an independent uh, Republican farmer uh, if we have access to the market and the capital, our Republican agenda seems to offer that. And so it, you do a really nice job of showing how they might start with the same basic uh, yearnings, but mm -hmm. depending on, and, and as you point out, depending on geography as well, it, it really gets complicated from there. Um, it's interesting too, um, that this then sets up, as you point out, and this is the, the, the heart of your article, um, this context for these voters to look at these intense factionalism of the <clears throat> national 1860 election. And as you have said already a couple of times, what we think of when you or I teach uh, the survey about the factionalism in the 1860 election from a national view, you point out that's not what these people are getting all excited. They're just as excited as everyone else, but it's about very different things. Um, so when people 
in the Catskills looked at what was going on nationally. How did that uh, sort of interface with what they cared about locally and how did that start to develop these local factions? It's, it's, it's funny because like you said, I kind of went into it thinking I was going to find one thing <laughs> and I found something completely different. So for some people, um, again, slavery isn't an issue, right? They're not concerned. It's not, it doesn't affect their day-to-day -day life. Um, <clears throat> they, they don't think about the morality of it. Um, and especially in the early 1850s, right? But things start moving nationally um, and start getting heightened in the 1850s that Northerners can't really ignore as much, right? Things like Kansas, Nebraska, and, and the canning of Sumner and all of these, <clears throat> all of these things that are in the news all the time. And now this idea of the slave power becomes more and more real, even though it's an idea. They're seeing evidence of it. And some people are very concerned about that and others are not concerned about that, right? Others benefit from the slave power, right? Especially farmers in the North who are selling their, their products to Southern plantations, right? Um, and they're very integrated. Also, um, there's this idea that, and I guess this is kind of where the project even actually started from. When we think of the political contest of 1860, it's like North versus South, right? And all the Northerners reunited against, you know, the Southerners and Lincoln's their man. And all the Southerners were all Douglas or Bell or Breckenridge, right? And, and no Lincoln. And it's not the case at all. The North was so diverse, way more diverse than we give it credit for. Um, this idea, and, and, and I was inspired by uh, William Freeling's, right? His idea that there's so many different Souths. There's no one South. There's no one North. And the Catskills region for New York State kind of proves that to me. This is a region that you would think because everyone has told us should be strongly Republican. And they're totally not strongly Republican. They see their interests more aligned with Southerners. Um, the difference though, and I think it's generational as well, younger men who might've always worked on the family farm, but there's no more land for them to purchase or they're, you know, it's cost prohibitive to purchase land um, or that they don't see that their individual opportunities um, are being met by the political parties or the people that are running the political parties in their local areas. They're not, they're not helping me. They're not speaking to my needs. And here comes this really exciting opportunity filled Republican party and especially the wide awakes as they start um, getting bigger and bigger and the organization is growing and, and everyone kind of sees how attractive this is, they, they hitch their wagon to that, right? And, and it does um, create tension in families. There's families where, you know, father, like I said, 
Democrat and the son is a Republican wide awake, right? So it speaks to, it's not, it's not a North-South divide. It's way more complex and complicated than that. And we don't recognize that enough. It's not cut and dry. <laughs> well, you certainly demonstrate that in this piece. And what's interesting is um, it, it looks like in the case of New York, um, the opponents of Lincoln understood that maybe it was a little bit too complicated for their own good. And so uh, it wasn't, in fact, uh, in the Empire State anyway, four-way race. There was this... Mm -hmm. uh, tense fusion of all of the anti-Lincoln candidates. Uh, talk a yep. bit about that and how it played out in the Catskills. Well, it's kind of funny because that's something that wide awakes are constantly um, <laughs> pointing at and making fun of. Like, look at you Democrats. You can't even get behind one candidate, um, especially the newspaper editors, right? Um, and they're really, they're the middlemen right? They are the ones that are trying to make these local concerns seem national and national concerns seem local, right? They're, they're the guys that are trying to, to, to pull voters to their side, whatever side they're on. And so essentially New York State, you know, they couldn't figure out who should be at the top of the Democratic ticket, right? they decide to break up the electors amongst the three candidates. Now in the Catskills region, Douglas tends to be the most popular. Most people are belonging to little giants clubs and, and Douglas is their candidate. Um, so I think there's, I wanna say the wrong numbers. The, I wanna say it's like 18 or 19 electors are gonna to go to Douglas. And then about half of that are going to go to Bell, and then a very small percentage are going to go to Breckenridge. So Republicans locally are constantly making fun of them for this. Like, because of the fact that you're so disunified, that's why you're going to lose. Which doesn't actually work out. That's not the case. But it's something that they're, um, that, that's fueling this. It's acrimonious. And they write little op-eds in the newspapers, making fun of them. They create these really funny um, names to call them. Um, it's definitely, it's a problem. It's a problem. And that's why New York ends up going, you know, overall, ends up going for Lincoln. But it wasn't a sure thing by any means. Well, some of the people that were trying to make sure it was a, it would become a sure thing and, and you talk about them, you've mentioned them already, are these youthful wide awakes. Um, not only are they young and enthusiastic, they're also rather, you point out several times, sort of martial uh, in, in their uh, behavior and their antics. Uh, talk a little bit more about how they presented themselves in Catskill society, uh, Catskills communities, in those market towns you're talking about and, and their role in this campaign. I think, um... So definitely the martial aspect, the military aspect appealed um, to these young men <clears throat> who most likely grew up on farms that are pretty distant from town centers. Um, they might have a couple of fellow farm boys that they hang around with or brothers or cousins or whatever. 
but the wide awake organization offers them this sense of like brotherhood we're in it together they have special uniforms that they would wear um the torches again marching in lockstep together it's intimidating <clears throat> and they like the fact that they're intimidating they like the fact that people are paying attention to them because they don't necessarily have a lot of power right if you're growing up on your family's farm and and your father's running the farm and and your uncles or your grandfather or whatever you don't really have a lot of power you don't have your own money you don't there's not a lot of job opportunities out there for you um so this is a way of asserting your independence. It's definitely a generational thing. Most wide wakes are young. Um, and they have these processions that everyone's watching. Um, there's There tends to be a lot of alcohol involved. Um, they usually end up at a tavern, like that's the end of their route. Um, and it's in the streets. It's one huge party. They like that. Older people living in the towns don't necessarily like that. <laughs> they um, they they write you know op-eds in the newspaper complaining about it. Um, some people are pretty apathetic to what's going on. They're they're not getting involved at all. They see all these parties as you know a pain, keeping them up at night. Um, so it's definitely it creates a tension. But again, it presents an opportunity for these young men to be seen, to feel like they have some sort of power, some sort of voice. Um, they're excited about participating in politics because they haven't for a while. The younger generation tended to not be the voting, you know, the deciding vote. And I think in this election, they are. The fact that they're able to gain so much support, the wide awakes are instrumental in getting Lincoln elected. Um, and it's that younger vote that matters, I think. So at least in the Catskills region, you have a lot more political participation in this region than in the previous elections. They're excited. Yeah. No, it's fascinating because the energy and the enthusiasm for Lincoln uh, as you sort of implied a, a moment ago, if you're a young man growing up on a farm uh, in much of this region, there might not be a future in farming for you there, but there might be one out west, and that's yes. the of free soil. It's that opportunity. But there's also this opportunity to assert yourself in the public sphere back <clears throat> home, which might not have been open to these young. So, so in both cases, both there and sort of projecting westward, there's this this youthful energy that you really capture very nicely in, in the article. Um, there were also little giants, as you pointed out, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, this is Douglas's nickname. Um, and did they behave in a similar way? It, it doesn't sound like they had quite the same. Youth. No, they didn't have processions. They weren't marching through town with torches. Um, they tended to gather like, um, you know, in the in the main square, and they would have long uh, campaign speaches. Um, it tended to be or picnics. They had a lot of picnics, um, so women were involved too. They were definitely the quieter um, of the groups. Um, they went by a couple different names, but Little Giants was was the main one in this region. But 
Yeah, definitely not. And they're, and like I said, they're, they tend to be older. They tend to be established. They've owned farms. So it is something to do, you know, in the afternoon, go, go listen to campaign speeches, but nowhere's near as, as rollicking as the wide awakes were. (laughs) Um, But there was, there was one um, occasion, um, and I wrote about this in the article, there was a funeral for the sheriff's wife and it happened to be going on at the, you know, the, the political rally for the Little Giants Club is happening across the street from this poor widower's house and he's been in mourning and the, the anonymous uh, op-ed writer is complaining about this, like how can they be carrying on with these campaign speeches and and the cannons that are going off and because that was something that was featured in in uh, pretty much across the board was firing cannons <laughs> and and flag raising you know the the American flag that was something that was featured like across the board as well um there were but like I said there was no marching happening with the the little giants but that was that was a problem for this guy like can we at least stop politicking for like one week and let this guy just mourn the loss of his wife? Um, <laughs> he was sick of it. <laughs> well, I, I actually, I really, I was going to ask about that story, so I'm glad you brought it up. I, I like the funeral story because it reminds us, we think about these major historically uh, significant turning point elections. And we think, oh, everybody must have been captivated by it all the time. It turns out a lot of people were like, these these guys are obnoxious like they're sick of the campaign they're sick of all of the demonstrations and you sort of captured that as well which i appreciated and you did it as you pointed out uh largely through uh engaging with newspapers and the newspaper research uh is is really the heart of of how you approach this story um and i'm wondering if you can talk a bit about the intensely partisan role of the editors you mentioned them earlier as sort of these these middlemen um and and this this intensely partisan role they played in helping to frame uh, as as you put it before the national story in the context of local priorities and local divisions and how that opened up this world of stories for you during the research process yeah so the news i didn't think that the newspapers were going to feature so prominently in my work um but it's really hard to find firsthand accounts right in in the archives um thousands and thousands of soldiers letters right during the civil war we have so many of them but before the war kicks off where are we going to get a sense of what it's like to live here, right? Unless you can find some farmer who keeps like a diary or journal or someone who record, you know, is writing letters to family members, there's not really a lot of source material to figure out what it was like there, you know? So I went to the newspapers and I I spent days upon days upon days just reading newspapers and they're just so fascinating um, they tend to follow similar um, formulas, usually the first page. So they're usually four page um, papers. So the first page is usually like stories 
Um, sometimes they're like serialized. So like a part one, a part two, a part three. It could be any kind of story. It could be a romance story. It could be traveling. It could be, um, but that tended to be the front page. Sometimes like um, almanac type stuff. It would depend on the newspaper, but in general, um, nothing heavy on the front page. It's the second page and the third page. The inside is where it's all at. So usually the second page is national stuff. It's all the big national stories. A lot of exchanges with, you know, they're, they're publishing stuff from the New York Times, the New York Post, um, other nas big national newspapers. They're, they're reprinting those stories. So that news is already like a week old by the time it gets to the Catskills region. But it's still pretty up to date. Um, and then the third page was my favorite page, and that is all the local stuff. And so it can be as granular as how much, um, how much squash Mrs. So-and-so grew in her garden last week, right? Like it could be that minutiae in the newspaper, um, the county fair, whose who's, who's cow was the biggest at the county fair, um, all sorts of little nuggets like that, which I just found fascinating. And it really does give you a sense of what these communities are like. Um, but then once the political contest starts heating up, the whole tone of the newspaper changes on that third page. Instead of, we don't really care about how big her squash is now, it's all about who are the local candidates, which political platform are they running on? What do they support? Um, it's, it's so politicized and it's really hard to gauge um, how much it's the newspapers trying to influence the public opinion versus how much are they reflecting what's going on locally. Figuring out that balance is really difficult when it comes to newspapers because there's an editor, right? It's his, it's his voice. How much is he reflecting what he's hearing from his readers versus how much is he trying to influence his readers? It's really hard to tell in many ways. And you don't really have other people's voices to tell you, this guy's just inflammatory on purpose, right? Um, versus, oh no, he's hearing what his neighbors are talking about in the tavern and that's what he's printing. So it's really hard to um, step away and to not let these newspaper editors tell you, right? You have to kind of interpret them a little bit. And you, and, and from reading these guys, um, you know, every week they're putting out a paper, I get a sense of who's really trying to ramp things up and who is trying to step back, give a little bit more of a, a general overview of more of a reflection of what's going on. So like James Quinlan, he's a major one for me. He's a Democrat. He is, he ends up becoming, you know, Copperhead. And there's a whole, whole story with him later on. But he's inflammatory. He is on purpose trying to get people riled up. He's also in Sullivan County. 
Sullivan County is a Democratic <clears throat> county, traditionally voted Democratic. Um, more sparsely populated. Um, they don't necessarily want things to change that much. A lot of tanneries there who see their interests aligned with Southerners. So Quinlan is speaking to them and he's trying to get them riled up and he wants them to go vote. And there's a traditional history of, of them voting for Democratic ca uh, candidates. Someone like Charles Ackert, who's um, the New Paltz Times guy, he tries to tone it down a little bit. He tries to give um, more of an even, he, he, he says, you know, I'm not, I'm, we're nonpartisan. We're going to present both sides. Secretly, he's a Democrat, but he's not as inflammatory as Quinlan. Um, and then Taylor, who's an Ellenville, Ellenville Journal guy, he's staunchly Republican. <clears throat> and it's, it's Taylor and Quinlan that are at loggerheads. But he is, he is pro-Lincoln, he's pro-Republican Party. Um, Taylor is constantly printing these pieces, basically poking fun at the Democrats and their lack of unity. And you're going to ensure that the Republicans are going to win. Um, he's not trying to represent all of his readers, right? So you have guys like Quinlan and Taylor who are trying to be inflammatory. And then you have some like Ackert who's trying to be a little bit more, I think, reflective. And so you get a sense as you read more and more of these newspapers. I mean, I literally read every weekly newspaper for like six years. Um, and so I get to know them. <laughs> so yeah, they're, it, they're definitely trying to appeal, but they're also trying to inflame, right? And so I don't know how much what people are, um, who they plan on voting is driven by what they're reading in the newspaper, or is it their own thoughts and, you know, discussions with neighbors and discussion? It's, it's hard. You know, I can't say definitively this guy influenced this many readers and that, and they voted this way because of the newspapers, right? So using newspapers is tricky. <laughs> no, it is, but I, I, what I appreciate about what you're saying, um, because I have found, and I always encourage students, I mean, newspapers can be an incredibly rich and useful source. And like you, uh, some of the work I've done on various elections, you just, you read over the same months in paper after paper over and over, and you're just reliving this thing again and again, and you start following the uh, the news, and you start following different stories, and, yeah. and so forth, of. And, and that's useful, right, for you, because that might not be what you're writing about, but it gives you their world, it gives you what yep. people, but also recognizing the hyper-partisanship of these newspapers, um, it doesn't make them less useful, it just makes you more aware of what you're working with, and in, in some ways, it's more useful, because it gives you a sense for a sort of what exactly the most rabid partisans were saying and yeah. what people were hearing and, and what those wide awakes or little giants might have been taunting one another in the streets at those rallies saying as well. Um, and, and you capture that nicely. And of course, it wasn't just Lincoln versus this sort of uh, trio of alternatives. Um, it was also, there were other things on the ballot, including yeah. 
uh, a referendum in New York State about, well, it's misleading to say it's about black suffrage, but it's about expanding African-American men's uh, access. It's to dropping the property qualifications, yeah. the $250 property qualifications, right? That's what's on the ballot. But when you look at the newspapers, you wouldn't know that. If you're reading a Democratic newspaper, it is, do we want these Black people voting? No, of course, why would we? They're not, you know, and the list goes on and on um, of all the slurs that they would use. And then they tie it to Republicans, right? This is, if you vote Republican, this is what they want. They want amalgamation of the races. They want equality. And uh, we can't have that around here. Meanwhile, um, you know, this percentage of Black people who are actually living in this region is teeny, teeny, tiny, very small. Um, but their representation in the newspapers, um, I found was super interesting and I didn't include it in this article but it is in my dissertation a little bit about um they're the bad guys in the newspaper if there's a crime being committed if there's um suspicious activity it's it's black people who are committing these crimes um and you don't they don't <laughs> they take up a lot more space in the newspapers um given the percentage of their you know, population there. So they're definitely made out to be the bad people. And even good Black people are suspect, right? Um, so that's, that's a theme that kind of runs throughout my work when I, when I was looking at this, that I was a little surprised. I don't know why I was a little surprised. Um, but when it came to this vote, um, the, the referendum, Republicans are distancing themselves from this. They're saying, oh, no, 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 we do not support abolition. We're not abolitionists. We don't support equality. Um, and they're, it's kind of like doublespeak. They want you to vote for the Republican Party platform, but they want you to vote no on this referendum. And that's basically what happens. Um, it's, it gets pretty nasty in the newspapers, how people are talking about, um, black people and the threats that they will, um, have against the, the ability of white people to conduct businesses and find jobs and, you know, and it's, it's, it's sad. It, it shocked me when I, came across this stuff it wasn't something that I was um anticipating and so I I have one or two examples in the article but um there's some of the um less <laughs> yeah yeah there there was some pretty nasty stuff um that I came across and so when the the when the vote happens I mean, it's so upside down. There's just, there's no, and, and in, I think three of the counties, less than 15% of the people who voted, voted for the referendum, you know, to drop the property qualifications. So there's just no support. The only county that comes close is Delaware. And like I said, it's because they have a history there of 
uh, tepid support for abolition, but they also have more churches um, and ministers and, and preachers that are supportive of abolition. So they're hearing it more, right? And for them, it's a morality thing, um, but it still doesn't pass, right? <laughs> so the results were not shocking uh, when it came to that referendum. And I, I, like I said, I don't know why I was so surprised to come across that. And then when, like I said, when I started reading the newspapers and seeing how they're talking about this, it's just vile, some of the stuff that they would print in there, um, especially Quinlan. Quinlan was pretty outspoken about this. Well, and, and some of you are, even in the, even in the article that, that you did include from Quinlan are just abominably racist i mean just nasty did you i i'm i'm curious because this is not part of the article but it's part of your broader research um was the in general the anti um anti-black uh news coverage more intensely racist in the quinlan type democratic newspapers as opposed to republican or were they all pretty bad or because in, in your article it feels more like the republicans are kind of tap dancing and trying yeah. to get out of talking about it is that they are yeah they are for sure they're they're definitely they're avoiding it they're trying to avoid it and people like quinlan are calling them out well if you're if you're not supporting abolition you need to say so it's not enough not to say nothing you have to come out as anti right and and they're not doing that they're just trying to ignore it not address it or to other parts of the platform that are you know appealing you know talking about the railroad the pacific railroad they're talking about free soil uh they're talking about the slave power you know anything but um slavery is an issue in abolition so even though um and often i'm sure you encounter this too students come into <laughs> college classes thinking of the north as the and republicans as you know anti-slavery and abolitionists right these are the this is the party that freed the slaves and it's so more complicated than that it's not that at all and even though abolitionists fall fall under this umbrella of the republican party the republican party is not abolitionist <laughs> it's the only place the abolitionists see just maybe a glimmer of hope, right? And abolitionists see this opportunity um, of Lincoln being anti-slavery as a possibility, right? Um, even though Lincoln is quite clear that he has no interest in ending slavery anywhere that it exists, right? But he is at least not willing to let it expand, right so abolitionists see their only hope because they've already tried their own party and that didn't go anywhere right so it's the only possibility for them and so this idea that the republican party is somehow an abolitionist party um that's something we we create we created this story us americans today have created this story about who lincoln was and what he did the great emancipator right and the republican party was the abolitionist party and they freed the slaves and ooh, look at that civil war thank god we did that and it's over and we're the heroes now right and that's not at all what it was like it's so much more complex so 
Yeah, and, and it, it certainly comes across in your, in your piece that in this campaign, you basically have um, on the question of slavery and on the question even of the rights of uh, free African-American male citizens of New York State, uh, the um, Republicans are uh, at best equivocal and uh, indifferent, but uh, when that's stacked against the Democrats who are just obscene in their racism, literally obscene in their racism yeah. And, yeah. and their cruel attacks on uh, local African-Americans on in the article on Frederick Douglass, I mean, everybody is coming under there. And so I guess you can see why the abolitionists end up within that uh, Republican fold. Um, there are other people on the ballot um, and you talk briefly about Congressman Charles Van Wick. Um, <laughs> how does he fit into this story? It's sort of so Van Wick was traditionally um, a Democrat. Yeah. And then when the Republican party kind of took off in um, uh, 1856, he switched allegiance you know he went he went republican and he got elected to congress in 58 he won his seat so now he's up for re-election in 1860 the democrats just hate van wick um especially after he had given this speech on the house floor uh railing about the slave power and the southerners that have the stranglehold on federal power and this is dangerous and he essentially um foresees for foretells this there's going to be a civil war if we don't address these problems um and so in the local newspapers you know the democratic partisan editors are like screaming about van wick um and his election and I talk about it a little bit in the article is super exciting because they don't really know who wins for a while because they're counting votes and recounting votes and then they throw out like a whole town's votes because it was suspicious and and nobody really knows and so then some you know after the election happens and Van Wick just squeaks by a little bit and I think it's also because he's pretty connected he's pretty well connected you know um, and he's the incumbent and he has a history. I think that's the only reason why he wins this election. Um, do I think there's some corruption involved? For sure. They threw out a whole town's votes <laughs> for suspicious activity. Um, but he is, he is an abolitionist in a region that it's not popular to be an abolitionist. Um, and even Republicans are a little bit tepid in their support for him, vocally, but he canvasses a lot and he travels throughout these communities a lot. He's also um, technically from Orange County, where Republicans, so it's still a Democratic county. Orange County is still Democratic, but it's bigger, has bigger towns, has a uh, younger demographic because younger people are drawn to these cities, way more employment opportunities. So even though technically it's not a Catskills County, how the congressional districts are drawn are Sullivan and Orange make a district. So even though we have Sullivan County as a Catskills County and Orange County, who's technically like a Hudson Valley County, they're tied together. So that's why I talk about some Orange County stuff in here. Um, even though technically it's not a Catskills County. 
So he has to try, he doesn't really do much to drum up support in Sullivan County because he, he knows it's not there. They traditionally vote Democratic, even though he used to be a Democrat, he's kind of turned, their, turned his back on them, right? So he's really focusing on Orange County. He has a hope of getting reelected. Um, and he does, but I think it's connections that get him vote, uh, reelected. But Van Wick is super interesting because he kind of, um, well, he basically creates his own regiment, the 56th New York Regiment. Um, they call it the 10th Legion. And he recruits all of these soldiers in 1861. Um, and he's, he's the colonel, he's, he's leading this regiment. And it's young guys, they're wide awakes. Wide awakes were his support, right? He's, he, they're going with him as he's canvassing throughout Orange County. So he ends up having so many soldiers that they, they, they create their own battery and their own um, cavalry. And, you know, thousands and thousands of men are, are riled up by him and he's their leader. So that popularity wins out in the end. But even during the war, when he's, you know, serving his country and he has enrolled all of these men they came because he asked for them to join his regiment you know he created this regiment um people like Quinlan are still having a problem with him bringing up like little tiny things like um the mail okay he's corrupt because he <laughs> is putting his congressional stamp on these soldiers' letters, and so they're not paying for postage. And that's corrupt, right? Like, little things like that. <laughs> and it's controversial. It's controversial, the whole postal stamp, you know, using your congressional power to send these letters, soldiers' letters to the mail for free is a real problem for some of these Democratic editors. It's like, how can you have a problem with soldiers' families getting these letters. Well, it's because they belong to Van Wick's regiment. Because they're not saying anything about the other regiment's soldiers' letters, right? It's just Van Wick's regiment that they have a problem with. So Van Wick is a great, uh, great character for me. I really like him a lot, too. <laughs> He's a really fascinating uh, character in, in your story. He only appears briefly here, but it sounds like he's a bigger part of... of yeah, he's a bigger, bigger part of the dissertation. He almost sounds, I mean, so he's a former Democrat rather than a former Whig, but aside from that and his rhetoric and his sort of lightning rod status and, and his predicting what was about to happen, he sounds almost like a hometown uh, William Henry Seward. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Except he goes off to war rather than becoming a very disappointing... Uh, Secretary of State who's suddenly <laughs> like, oh no, I didn't mean any of that. But anyway, that's a different that's a different story. Um, so uh, how the Catskills end up? Well, you you've sort of hinted at this, but the the Catskills in eighteen sixty kind of do go Lincoln, but not they the split. So yeah. two go Lincoln, um, three go Democrat. So um, Ulster County is just I think there's like two or three hundred votes difference um and ulster county had traditionally been democratic so the fact that they flipped to republican is a big deal um delaware is the only county 
that is overwhelmingly uh, Republican. But again, like I said, they have that history there um, and, and they're further away. So the Republican Party appeals to them. They need railroads. They need plank roads because Delaware County is about as far away from uh, Kingston as you can get in this instance. So they, they need to be more connected. And so the Republican platform for them, is, it's the opportunity. So that's why they go Republican. And then the other three, uh, so Sullivan never, was never going to go Republican. Um, and then Ulster and Skahari and then Green. So, yeah. Is Delaware sort of, I mean, they seem to be the anomaly throughout this story. Are, do they have an alternative um, market to look to besides Kingston? So they have, um, they, I mean, they're kind of close to like Binghamton. Um, so they can get to Binghamton quicker than they can to Kingston, but it still takes longer. So I guess to Binghamton, it's the Delaware and the Susquehanna or whatever, like it's a different way and it takes longer and it costs more for them. So they would rather hook into the Hudson River, right? It's a day to New York City, right? It's quicker but it's the New York City merchants that they wanna connect with, right? So Delaware County newspapers, it's really the newspaper, I mean, the um, railroad that they're going on and on and on about throughout the whole um, election. <laughs> so yeah, but Delaware County is the anomaly. And like I said, um, more abolition support there, but even in Delaware County, they just squeak by that referendum, right? <laughs> it's it's interesting. So the the part of the today's uh, conversation that won't surprise uh, our viewers is that Lincoln did triumph uh, nationally, um, and that led to even uh, more factionalism uh, and and fracturing, which of course people know, but that's not what we mean at first. Uh, in this conversation, uh, not what people are thinking on the national level, because um, you've got, on the one hand, sort of the wide awakes do a series of victory laps, and they seem to be showboating. You've got Democrats yep. <laughs> complaining about that. You've got people blaming the outcome on the, the weather. It was snowy that day. It was raining. You've got people freaking out because Lincoln is going to kill the tanneries, even though the tanneries have been in decline for a while. Um, no. And there's all these like, pet, I mean, they, they seem, because we know what's coming, and it feels like some of these people might know what's coming too. It seems really petty to the point of being asinine, some of these like little, mm -hmm. but it really immediately gets politicized the response to the politics, right? And talk a little bit about some of the local quirky stuff that's going on. In the yeah, yeah. So they definitely, um, there's some hurt feelings for sure, right? Especially in counties that voted Democrat and Lincoln still won. That's suspicious to them, right? It's got to be corrupt. There's got to be a reason because we didn't vote for Lincoln. So how could he possibly win, right? Um, definitely Quinlan is really upset about this. He's, he's pissed off. And he does predict um, 
you know, war. This is not going to be good. You elected a, a sectionalist, right? Um, cannot deny the fact that Lincoln did not appear in the ballot in most Southern states, right? How can you get more sectional of a party if half the country couldn't vote for him if they wanted to, right? Um, but that all smacks of corruption to them. That This is suspicious. How could he possibly win if half the country couldn't vote for him, right? Um, and so the corruption cry is, is frequent, it's loud, um, especially in, in Sullivan County, um, for sure. Quinlan is, is loud about it. And all most Republican editors, like Taylor, it's kind of like, you guys are freaking out for no reason, okay? Like, Lincoln is not going to start a war. You need to calm yourselves down. Um, nothing bad's going to happen, right? And then, <laughs> and then as more and more stuff starts happening, they're still trying to... They're, they're blaming Democrats for riling everyone up, right? You keep agitating the slavery problem and you keep talking about it. Let's, let's just let it go. Um, and they, they have a sense of themselves as mattering to the national story in a way. So these editors um, are trying to show how they, how what they're thinking and what they're feeling matters. Southerners are aware how you guys voted up here, right? They know who voted, you know, which counties went Democrat and which counties went Republicans. And Southerners are pissed off and they're justified in these hurt feelings. And so when South Carolina secedes, these Democrats are like, we told you this was gonna happen. What did you think was going to happen if you go elect the sectional Republican candidate, right? What did we, we told you, you know, we predicted this. Why y'all acting surprised, right? And they start supporting these Southern states. So of course they're going to secede. Why shouldn't they secede? They're not being represented. Lincoln's not their president. You know, they didn't vote for him. And so they kind of start justifying it. And of course, the Republicans are screaming about this. You know, they're traitors. How can they leave the union? You can't leave the union. And then you have some middle of the road editors who are like, we're not going to miss them. We don't really need them. You know, so it's, it's funny how there's all these different perspectives. Everyone feels differently about what's happening. And then there's some direct um, involvement with New York State um, and Georgia. Um, this is another little um, kind of a tangent, but Georgia had ordered, had bought um, guns from the New York State merchant. And they end up uh, in New York City on a ship. They end up getting confiscated in New York City. And it's this whole big problem. And the governor's writing back and forth to each other, like Governor Brown in Georgia. He's like, you got to release my guns. We need our guns. And Morgan's like, no, we're not giving you guns. You're seceding. Why would we give you guns? Like it's this whole thing that's playing out. And there's this tension that's happening. Um, eventually, sometime in March, they end up releasing the, the guns to Georgia. But I mean, this is in March that this is happening. 
right? So there's tension. Um, and the idea that they weren't aware of war coming, I think is a little disingenuous. I can't, we cannot say that they're super surprised, right? They, they see what's happening. Um, and, and, and when the war breaks out, I mean, the partisanship just increases that much more between these editors and it gets pretty nasty. I mean, they would, they would take pot shots at each other generally um, by, by generalizing them to the Republicans. Oh, you Republicans or oh, you Democrats. But now they're calling each other out by names, right? They're being explicit about who they're calling out and their attacks are much more personal. And, and I write about this in the article with Quinlan and Taylor, right? My Ellenville guy and the Monticello guy, they're downright nasty. And Ellenville was a Republican stronghold. Um, and Taylor, like I said, he's a Republican. They burn an effigy of Quinlan in the town square. They're partying down with Quinlan. Um, Quinlan ends up becoming a, he calls himself a peace Democrat. Later on, they're called Copperheads, right? Um, he's a super controversial figure. And, and when the war starts, it gets nasty. And it, it, I mean, these these communities, these families are fracturing over this. Um, it does. There's no great unified North here, right? And everyone's not. Oh, save the Union, and Lincoln is our hero, and hoorah, let's go to war. That's not what's happening here, right? Um, and it's quite a story. Well, yeah, and, and you do a, re a really good job of showing that uh, once the war that Quinlan and others had been predicting does come, um, it was, uh, it's their pals down in South Carolina decide to start it, and then they start using those guns in Georgia against probably New Yorkers. I don't know what became of the guns where they were used, but presumably, you know, maybe New Yorkers yeah. fell on a field as a result. Well, that doesn't, as you point out, bring all these people together and say, okay, well, there are some things bigger than uh, Ellenville versus Monticello. It's, 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 they, they keep going and it, it gets intensified. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's really um, fascinating the way you, again, use these um, newspapers to give us a sense of how the local dynamics continue despite this national cataclysm now. Um, and the Copperheads, um, these so-called peace Democrats, uh, they do quite well in the next election that you discuss, yeah. 1862. Now, at this point, all of the things that um, we as young people uh, wanted to believe about Abraham Lincoln are sort of starting to maybe percolate toward becoming closer to true. Uh, he's taking the first step with uh, Emancipation Proclamation. Other things come after your story, at least in this article, ends. Uh, but slavery, uh, which Lincoln, as you point out, had always denied he had any uh, interest in ending, is suddenly become part of the war for the North, not just for the South, for whom it had always been 
the heart of their case, but now for the North as well, uh, for the United States as well. And that, of course, uh, gives uh, people like Quinlan all the ammo that they need uh, to continue making their arguments. Yeah. So, so now this stuff's actually true that they've been saying, I yes. mean, not the nasty stuff, but, but the stuff about yeah. abolition, it's suddenly real. How does that yeah. play out in the Catskills? So it's fascinating. Um, so this really um, has an impact. It bleeds into so many different things. Um, and like I said before, it's part of this larger project that I'm working on. But most clearly, I see it in enlistment for the military, right? So you're wide awake, you're Republicans, they're your early volunteers. They're the guys that are going in 1861 early 1862, they're fired up, they're excited, right? Not necessarily abolitionists, but it's about saving the union, right? Very, in fact, I, I could say maybe 0.01% of men volunteering for military service have any interest in ending slavery. It does not, it, it's not something that they're thinking about. They're not going to war to emancipate slaves. It's not something that's being talked about nationally yet, right? Um, they're going to save the union. They're going to make money. They're going because they're bored. There's no, there's no employment opportunities, right? There's a whole host of reasons why these men are going. It's, it's 1862 that is a turning point in this region and not in a way that I thought it would be. <laughs> When we think of Emancipation Proclamation and um, ending slavery as being this national strategy, right? That now all, all these Northerners are gonna unite behind this. Actually, when the Emancipation Proclamation is announced, um, people are pissed. And around the same time, they're talking about the threat of the draft, right? Okay, so now you're gonna make me go fight in a war to emancipate slaves? Oh, no, 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 no. And so a lot of the regiments that start recruiting in this, you know, in this year, in 1862, they, they're struggling to find men who are willing to put their lives on the line <laughs> to fight a war for abolition. So it's a problem in this region. Eventually, um, bounties start increasing more and more money can be made by enlisting. I think that that's a driving force, which is not something that we usually talk about when we're talking about why Union soldiers are going to fight in the Civil War, right? We like to idealize and glorify our soldiers for fighting for this bigger moral cause, something that we've been taught, right? Um, but I think in this region, at least, money is a bigger factor here. In fact, some of my soldiers are very explicit in their letters. <laughs> they're pissed off that they're having to deal with these emancipated slaves. Um, they're not interested in that, right? And people at home aren't really interested in it either. So it fractures things, it, it complicates things a little bit more um, because then we have Republicans who have to kind of justify supporting Lincoln and his war agenda where at the same time, they're supposedly not supporting abolition. How do you square that, right? How do you, and so again, they try to avoid it. 
we're not in this war to fight for abolition. We're not really interested in freeing slaves. If that happens, cool. You know, let's face it, slavery is not that moral, but they definitely focus on bringing the union together, right? And they create the union party in, in 1862. And the peace Democrats and the Copperheads, they're like, let's just end the war now. The constitution as it is, right? That's their, their little tagline there, right? Which if we end the war right now, slavery is still legal, right? Let's stop killing people over this fractional war here that, you know, it's, we're just killing each other. What's the purpose of this? There is no purpose. Let's everyone go back to the way it used to be. And that's kind of what the Democrats always were. They were the party of the status quo. They're very conservative. They don't like change. They don't want things different. And so that's what the Copperheads want. Um, they want to go back the way things used to be. And of course, at this point, we're on the train now. We can't. Um, but I, when I, again, when I approached this project, I thought, based on the things that I had read, the little local town histories, and what I knew as a person that lives here, I had a very different picture in my head. I thought it was going to be super pro-union, super Republican, supportive of Lincoln. Lincoln is the man, right? And the regimental histories that you read, and like I said, the town histories, they talk about the war. Decades later, they're writing, they talk about this as a unifying event as we all came together and supported this, this wonderful thing of bringing the union together, but also ending slavery, the scourge that is slavery. Um, and all of this acrimonious splintering is nowhere to be found in these histories. And so as I'm reading these newspapers and I'm seeing how these people are voting and what they're talking about in their letters, I'm like, is crazy because this is like a completely different type of atmosphere than what I'm reading in these town histories or you know these these regimental histories um also like some of these historical societies they would have like um exhibitions um I remember in Sullivan County the Sullivan County Historical Society in Hurleyville had like a whole display about the Civil War and it kind of takes you through, you know, this is what they were doing in 1860. And it's all very kumbaya. We all rallied around the flag. Everyone is pro-union, pro-Lincoln, pro-ending slavery. And that is something that we now have read back into the past. And it, and if you actually look at what it was like, it's not that at all. Um, they were not pro-ending slavery. They were avoiding military service because they did not want to fight in a war to emancipate slaves. Money made the difference. Um, the nastiness in the newspapers, you don't see that in town histories, you know, written decades later, right? They talk of the Civil War as, as if it's this defining moment of unity in the country, in the North. It's not that at all which was kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it's interesting. <laughs> I, I suppose it's ironic how yeah. you, um, by engaging with uh, the rich and understudied sources available at these local institutions, have now been put in a position to sort of 
wouldn't say undermine, but complicate the stories that are being told at those yes. same local. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. I have to tell you, it's uncomfortable when you have when I'm I can remember doing my my research and going in these little archives. And I, I have to tell you, they're great places to go because they essentially just open up their doors and say, have at it, whatever you want, right? Sift through binders of family histories and letters and I pretty much had carte blanche, right, to do whatever I wanted and, and, and read as much as I could and take pictures. And they're great places to do this research. But then when I'm explaining to them what I'm finding, it's uncomfortable because they want to believe the stories that they've heard about the meaning of the Civil War, why their ancestors fought, um, how their town came together. They want to believe that it's some unifying event, right? They want to believe that the Civil War is justified because we ended slavery and it was a good thing, right? And we had the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment. It created modern America as we know it. And aren't we so great? Let's pat ourselves on the back because as a country, we ended the problem, right? We ended slavery. It's great. Um, and then when you look back, it's like, hmm, actually, really no one was supporting that. And they weren't unified. Um, and something, I don't, I don't know if I touch upon this in the article or not, but home guards are created in these little communities. And they're basically, you ever seen the movie Cold Mountain? I have not, but I, I know of it. Yeah. Okay, so it's based on a book and victims and so essentially it's men who for some reason are not serving in the military and they're tasked with going around and, and enforcing support for the Confederate cause. So it's something that happens in the South. Never thought in a million years I would see something like that in the North. We don't think of the North as that, right? We don't think of the North as being, as having pockets of let's say not so pro-union areas, right? We're taught that the North is all unified and it's one thing, this homogenous thing. And the South, okay, we can agree. You know, we've all seen Free State of Jones or whatever, and we know there's little pockets of disunity within the Confederacy. And that's a good thing because not everyone supported the Confederacy and that's why it fell apart, right? And we don't really talk about the disunity in the North. And so when I see home guards popping up, where they're basically men who create this martial military guard to enforce loyalty, to enforce, if they hear suspected secessionists or Southern supporters, they're knocking on your door. They're warning you. They're calling you out in the newspaper. Um, that's not unifying, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's not the stories that we're told about the North. So it's much more fractional than we think. Well, absolutely. And so you, you complicate a, a lot of our uh, older assumptions about the North, about rural New York, uh, particularly. Um, and you've talked a bit about this, but if, if you want for a moment, this is part of a 
larger dissertation that is nearing completion at the time of this recording. Uh, how does this fit into the sort of the bigger picture of, of what you're presenting in that in that work? So the larger um, dissertation project, um, kind of my goal is to look at the Catskills region um, kind of before, during, and after a little bit, the Civil War era, definitely to complicate what we think we know about the North. Um, it's funny how I came to the project completely not I didn't think I was going to be doing a case study on a region in New York State. My original project was actually going to be looking at Northern women during the Civil War. And I read Judy Giesberg's um, Army at Home in, in a grad seminar. And I was struck by, she wrote about these farming women and, and their experiences. And so I started doing a little research and I couldn't really find a lot about Northern rural women. I could find women who were nurses, the Sanitary Commission, Benevolence Associations, um, but definitely um, more representative of urban areas and what women could, could do in urban areas, not so much on rural regions. And I'm like, huh. So I started researching in some local historical sites, see if I can find some stuff written by women about what it was like to live through the Civil War. Well, wouldn't you know it, they didn't write a lot <laughs> or they didn't save them. Um, I think they were honestly too busy working on farms to spend time writing in diaries and journals, but I found a ton of letters um, written by soldiers. Mm. And in these soldiers' letters, written by these men who lived in the Catskills region, I was able to figure out what it was like to live in the North based on what they would talk about in their letters to their wives or to other family members. So it's kind of like reading into the sources in a way to figure out what it was like to be a woman living in a rural region. So I said, well, you know, we often tell the story of the Civil War as either... Um, north-south, right, or the story of the home front versus the battlefront, except for in the south, right, because the home front is the battlefront, or it's a story of civilians versus a story of soldiers, right, they can't understand what the other is going through because they're not there, and based on what I was reading in this early, early research, I think it was, um, I don't even think I had my prospectus on at this point. I think it was for a research seminar paper. So it's really funny that like all the books, all the scholarship is either or. It's either or. It's either all about the civilians or it's all about the soldiers. It's all about the home front or it's all about the battlefront. But these letters are about both and they tell both stories. I can tell what's going on at home based on what this soldier in this battlefront in Tennessee is asking his wife what he's telling her to do, the questions he's answering. So then I got thinking about this larger story of like connections between soldiers and civilians and these letters and newspapers are kind of this, this huge network that they create during the war. So I said, well, to set this story, I need to know who these people are. Who are these soldiers? Who are these civilians? 
So let's look at what it was like to be in the Catskills region um, before the war. And that's where things got very interesting because it complicated everything I thought I knew. Um, this rural urban divide that I imagined in my head, um, it's not really that neat. <laughs> these rural regions are very tied in and connected and oh, these guys aren't um, so pro-union. They are much more, it's much more complex here. And, um, and then the after the Civil War story is about the stories. So it is a little bit about veterans and, and how they reintegrate. But the last chapter that I'm working on now is how these stories that we tell ourselves about these communities, how they came to be. So it's about Civil War memory right? Because I've just given you five chapters about what it was really like. And yet, if you pick up, you know, a town of Allenville history or something, or the history of Delaware County, that's not in there. Why is that? What happens between 1865, right? And now that somehow this history is forgotten or it's a race and it is it's it's about how we tell ourselves stories about the importance of the past the meaning we make of the civil war right because it's it, that's the difference between memory and history right it's the meaning that we make out of it and the meaning has been erased for a lot um a lot of this history that's been written so that's kind of at the heart of it so trying to, to bring together topics that aren't normally all together. So not only am I going to talk about soldiers, but I'm going to talk about civilians too and how they're connected um, and rural urban stuff and local, national, it's all connected. We have to stop thinking of these things as all disconnected. That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> Well, I think you do it very well in the article, and I'm, I'm sure Thank that uh, throughout the, the body of the dissertation, um, which, as you point out, you are uh, in the very uh, final stages of finishing up. Um, and so uh, at, at the time of this recording, uh, as a nation, as a world, certainly New York State, um, emerging um, slowly but surely over the past month or so from uh, the pandemic, um, I'm curious how, the, I think there have been so many tales from so many uh, different scholars about how this has complicated their, um, their research or their teaching or their, I mean, in everyone's lives. And I think archival inconveniences are, are minor compared mm -hmm. to a lot of what's going on over the last year or more, but it has certainly taken a toll on graduate work. We've seen a lot about that in the news. Um, has this affected your own ability uh, in any way? And how have you dealt with it and overcome it? Because you continue For sure. Um, well, it, it essentially put me a year behind. <laughs> um, but I was actually, it's funny when this all began with the pandemic, um, beginning of March, I was booking a hotel um, for DC, I was going to go to the National Archives and I was going to look at um, veterans records and pension records, Civil War soldiers. I kind of put it off, put it off, put it off, thinking maybe I could get away with not going. And then I said, oh, I should probably go, right? So I started, I was looking at hotels and was going to 
And then the next week is when everything started shutting down and I was supposed to go. It was um, uh, March 16th through the 20th was when I wanted to go. And I think everything shut down like on the 13th or something. And I was like, well, I'm glad I didn't actually book the hotel and pay for it (laughs) because I had heard, you know, I heard stuff and I said, I'm going to wait on that. And I'm glad I did. So I never actually ended up getting to the National Archives, but I was able to work around it. But um, teaching online as a as a online instructor, um, it just takes all your time. And so I was teaching three classes all online, and my ability to to write to work, um, yeah, it was definitely definitely harder and and you have so much screen time that the thought of spending even another 10 minutes to bang out like 100 words or something like I just can't do it I don't have the energy to do it I need to take a break from the computer um teaching online takes more time especially on the I I teach asynchronously so um it's a lot of front-end work to get the class all up there, get everything loaded, record everything, get all the websites, the links up there. Um, so that's a lot of labor um, that you're, you know, output there. And so time to work on your own stuff, it just kind of falls lower and lower on the totem pole. So it did put me a year behind, but um, I'm motivated now to finish. So. <laughs> Well, uh, you, you have much to be uh, proud of in, in the process because uh, while, uh, while you were uh, waiting to get back out there, uh, you've uh, published an article in a, yeah. what I think we can all, uh, are you the fabulous journal and I should say, yes. this is not the one, this, hers, uh, M- Melissa's will be coming out in the coming weeks, uh, but New York History Journal. Uh, and so this is your chance, uh, everybody subscribe and, and you can get uh, 102.1 is what uh, Melissa's article and other fine material will be uh, appearing in. And as uh, you point out, um, you're on the final chapter and it looks like you'll be defending this year. And so that is uh, something to be applauded as well, particularly given um, all of the challenges facing uh, you and everyone uh, over the <laughs> past uh, year plus. Uh, so. Thank you for enduring Thank a little you. bit extra screen time uh, today uh, and uh, talking with me about uh, your fine article and uh, for joining us on Empire State Engagements. Melissa, it's really been a pleasure to talk to you about this exciting new piece. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. It was great.